Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I think there's going to actually be massive change that will come out of this current crisis. It's not just technology, but it's just also how people are relating to each other. I think we're entering into a space where there is a whole new conversation to be had about the sort of world that we want to live in. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. This week on the show, we're excited to introduce you to Deanne Weir, a former media lawyer and executive turned producer, investor and company director. Sounds so cool. Deanne started her career as a corporate lawyer in Australia and spent years in the telco and television sectors. She became one of the most respected executives in the broadcast industry in Australia and New Zealand. Indeed she did. And in 2012, as a member of the senior leadership team and a shareholder of Ozstar, an Australian cable TV company, she played a key role in the sale of the company. The capital she personally earned from the sale gave Deanne the opportunity to start her own investment company and start a whole new career. And today, her company, Weir Anderson, invests in entrepreneurs and storytellers to help them change the world, particularly in the broadcast and entertainment industry and the social sector. She's the chair of three startups, including one in data analytics and one in AI, as well as supporting not-for-profits as chair of the Sydney Film Festival the Grada Fund and Global Sisters. In this conversation, you'll learn how Deanne's upbringing in a regional town in Australia shaped her desire to change the landscape for women, what she learned as an investor when three of her investments failed all around the same time, why Deanne thinks there will be massive change after COVID-19 and the type of conversations we need to be having about the world we want to live in, and ways we can all personally make a difference in society and affect change. And it really feels like we need that these days. So without further ado, enjoy this conversation with the driven and passionate Deanne Weir. Deanne Weir, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you, ladies. Great to be here. Yeah, it's fantastic to be talking to you. And you're sitting somewhere in a suburb in Sydney, aren't you? I am. I'm looking out at my lovely front garden here in Glebe and the sky is blue and it's a glorious day. Yeah, aren't we lucky? Very much so. Now, you know, obviously we're we're living in crazy times. How have you been going during this time? How's it impacted you? 
Well, look, I work from home anyway, so that part of it isn't so weird for me. Although now I'm having to share the bandwidth with my husband, who's now working from home. So that's getting a little tense every now and then. <laughs> but look, I'm very, very lucky. But it's a, it is a, just a stressful time for everybody. And I think it's just important to try and keep reaching out to everyone and making sure that everyone is doing okay. Yeah, absolutely. And you're the chair of the Sydney Film Festival, aren't you? So that must be having a really big impact on the arts. Yes, look, across the entire creative sector, really, I think we were one of the first sectors to really be impacted, anything live or or large gatherings. And, you know, I also involved with a television production company. So, you know, we've had to shut down production. But at Sydney Film Festival, which normally happens every year in June, we had to cancel the festival this year for the first time ever in nearly 70 years. And that was heartbreaking. But you know, from lemons, we're trying to make lemonade and and coming up with some online opportunities to share the the love of film and the story of film. There's lots of innovation that's happening, which I think is quite exciting. But what's most concerning, I do think across the creative sector is that so many people who are involved in the arts and creative work are very much gig economy workers. And they are very vulnerable to this crisis in terms of their income. And a lot of them have just lost a year's income in a matter of weeks. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that's something I think we need to prioritise as a community going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. Deanne, a question that we like to ask all of our guests, which sometimes can be difficult, is if you had to describe yourself in terms of what you do today in a few sentences, what would you say? Yeah. Look, it is a great and rather tricky question. I really spend most of my days working with either companies that um, I've invested in and working with the entrepreneurs who've started those companies and just helping them do what they do and and sort of realise their vision and their dreams. And I also am involved with a number of not-for-profit and cultural organisations and in a similar way, I work with the CEOs of those organisations where I'm either the chair or just involved in that organisation and essentially helping those organisations do what they do. So I do a lot of um, brainstorming, a lot of advice giving. I do analysis of investment from my own investment company point of view. But I just I talk to people a lot and I love it. And I, I love getting energy back for the most incredible innovative people that I have such a privilege to work with, whether they're in for-profit organisations or not-for-profits. They're all out there trying to do something to make the world a better place and it's it's just a privilege to be able to play a role in helping them achieve that vision. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll come back to all of that work that you're doing today because it sounds as if it's sort of the culmination of your passions and, and the things that really fire you up. But before we do... I'd really love to go all the way back, if that's okay, all the way back to northwest Victoria in Australia, where you grew up in a regional town. What was your childhood like? Look, it was fabulous. I mean, it it was a small country town and I was very lucky. You know, my family, my siblings and my best friends, they always have been and they, they still are. But this was the 70s in regional Australia and early 80s. And, you know, it was a it was a town that whilst there was a great sense of community and a lot of love, there was also 
a lot of very strict attitudes about gender roles. It was, frankly, a pretty racist place. I like to say if, you know, growing up in Horsham in the 70s didn't turn you into a feminist, then nothing would. And I got some pretty clear messages early on that girls were meant to do certain things. And my own mother, who was a really intelligent woman, but was, you know, forced to leave school at 13 because from her father's perspective, why would you bother educating girls? So a lot of that really fed into my own views about, you know, what I wanted to be able to get out there and do something in life and not be restricted because of my gender or the fact that I grew up in a country town. When did you sort of kind of go, hang on, why should it be like this? I want it to be different. Well, look, one of the the luckiest things in my life was I sort of fell in with a bunch of girlfriends at high school who were their parents were all professionals in some way, whether doctors or lawyers or whatever. But the relevance of that was that it was assumed for them that they would go to university. Whereas for me, that was something that hadn't even really been contemplated. And growing up with that group of girls, we essentially all around the age of, you know, 14, 15, started becoming politically aware. And we were just so lucky to have some fantastic teachers at school who really forced us to question a lot of things. And then, you know, one teacher I had in particular, a a fabulous woman who in fact was just this breath of incredible fresh air, feminist, incredible woman who I'm a very good friend with to this day, which, and, and she really, for a lot of us, just helped us to articulate for ourselves what we were actually thinking and questioning. It was such an exciting time to be at school with those incredible group of young young girls and who were, we argued and we questioned and we contemplated the future of the world. We're still friends many, many years later. How amazing, like what a sliding doors moment, you know, that you fell in with that particular group of girls versus another and then that you got that particular teacher at the formative age sort of of around 14, I'm guessing, and a feminist was born, if I'm sort of not being too presumptuous there. Definitely, absolutely. (laughs) A feminist was was born and, yeah, it was a great childhood in, in all of those ways. And what made you want to study law at university? Well, it was interesting, you know, my two older brothers had already gone into the police force and I think I figured I would either study journalism or the law or probably join the police force and the fact that I got in to do law was, I thought, quite a a miracle and I really loved the study of the law and still do intellectually, even though I don't practice anymore. It was a fabulous way to think about how the world could be made better. Yeah, brilliant. And so you went to Telstra, the largest telco in Australia after graduating into, and you became a lawyer and you you climbed the ranks. It sounds like that was a a relatively sensible sort of career decision rather than a, a radical one that you may have taken. What was the strategy behind that? Well, you know, I was offered two jobs straight out of university as as a lawyer, and one was with the Department of Public Prosecutions and the other was as a corporate lawyer at Telstra and the Telstra one actually paid twice as much. 
I guess it was actually a pretty practical decision originally, but it actually made a lot of sense for me. Uh, You know, I'd been working in business since I was about 13, working in retail, and so I actually had quite an inherent business sense. It was just at the point in the early 90s where Telstra was being turned into a commercial operation from having been a government-owned entity. Everything was changing. And so when I started there, I think I was lawyer number six. And then by the time I left, there was sort of over 100 lawyers in the company. And the the whole role of the legal team was really fundamental to also helping that company transform. And I got the opportunity to go to New Zealand and work with a joint venture company. Telstra had in New Zealand and in a much more commercial role, not just a legal role. So within sort of a 10-year period, I had incredible opportunities to develop my career with Telstra. Yeah, fantastic. You eventually left Telstra and joined a pay TV company in Australia that was really struggling and viewed by some to be on the brink of bankruptcy. You know, quite a risky career move. What was behind your choice to take on that role? Ostar, the company, was actually the joint venture partner in New Zealand with Telstra. So I'd met the CEO and the senior team through that that environment. And, and in fact, John Porter, who was the CEO of Ostar at the time, offered me the opportunity. He said, look, there's, you know, a few problems, but we'll be fine. Why don't you come back and come back to Australia, move to Sydney and come and help me um, turn the company around? And so I did. And it was, you know, one of the, I think, best decisions I made. I had 10 fabulous years then. We ultimately sold that company um, in 2012 to Foxtel. Yeah, I imagine that was quite a life-changing kind of moment in the sense of your personal position. The senior management team were shareholders in the company. So we had had a couple of capital events along the way and then the um, the Foxtel sale was the final part of that capital event. And that then meant that, you know, I had a capital pool available to me that I could then start a whole new life from. You're now the chair of three different startups. What do you look for generally in founders and business ideas before you make an investment? Well, look, I've invested in a number of businesses since sort of, you know, 2010. Involvement has changed over time and a couple of those businesses are no longer here, but the others are are going really, really well. And I think what I'm interested in is passionate people who have got something to say and something that they want to do that they think is going to make the world a better or more interesting place. And I want to focus on businesses where I feel I have some level of contribution to make and that I'm passionate about about as well. So it's tended to be technology and um, media-related businesses. I just really identify with people who are sitting there and saying, I know exactly where I want to go, I know what I want to do, I need people around me who can help me get there. That's what really excites me. And to kind of make those investments, you know, how do you personally keep up with technological and digital changes? I read, but I t- gosh, these days I listen to a lot of podcasts. <laughs> Excellent. Pleased to hear it. <laughs> lots and lots of podcasts and talk to lots of people. I mean, I 
used to do a lot of coffee. I'm sure I'll go back to doing a lot more coffee again. Nowadays, it seems to be endless Zoom meetings, but just staying in touch with people, talking to people overseas and just networks and conversations are so are just so important that something that is peripheral, someone who you meet who you think, oh, they're actually quite interesting and it could be two years before you come back around and realise that there there might be an opportunity. Most importantly, even if it's not an opportunity for me, one of the things I just get the greatest joy out of is connecting people who I meet along the way because, you know, there are so many good people that I have the joy to come across and it's like, oh, you should really talk to that person. And I love watching all of those networks play out. Yeah, it's a joy to watch, isn't it? And talking about sort of technology and keeping up, let's say you were a 30-year-old today. What would you personally be focusing on to get yourself ready for the future of work? That is actually a great question. And they absolutely do need to be having a think about future of work and where things are going. I think there's going to actually be massive change that will come out of this current crisis. It's not just technology, but it's just also how people are relating to each other and what it is that is is going to be useful. I think we're entering into a space where there is a whole new conversation to be had about the sort of world that we want to live in. We are facing, you know, a climate crisis still that has fallen off the front page simply because of the magnitude of this crisis, but that problem's not going anywhere. We are also seeing incredible transformation in the way in which things work. And and I think people understanding the concept of exponentiality, uh, like in thinking about the virus and how it spreads, might also help them step back and think about the incredible change that's going to happen with just exponential change in computing and what that means for how technology is going to continue to impact on our lives and how that will transform existing jobs and roles. So I think trying to have an understanding about that and understand where do you think you can make a difference and what skill set can you bring to what industries, I think they're, they're really questions that we should be asking because it's key things around empathy, around design thinking and around really emotional intelligence that are going to be the important things where humans are going to have the opportunity to do what humans do best and then let technology do other things. Yeah, and also just how humans need to be very involved in creating the society that we want and not allow the technology to create the society. Exactly right. It, it, you know, there is no predetermination around what that future looks like unless we let that happen. And and I think that's a really important moment for us right now that we need to be very careful that we don't just use yesterday's solutions to try and deal with the incredible disruption that's happened in the last three months. What worries me though, and I'd be really interested in your point of view of how we can all play our bit here is, you know, there's so much talk about this is a great opportunity because we've had a circuit breaker to reset and build better foundations for the sort of the society and economies that we operate with. 
But what worries me is that that's all talk and without us coming together effectively to really push that through against the vested interests, nothing will be any different. How do you see the most constructive path forward? Well, that is a great question because I think unless we do engage, but what I mean, I'm sitting in on webinars and so on at the moment where there's 2,000, 3,000 people joining in on a webinar talking about these very issues. There is a lot of passion and a lot of interest out there. And I think to your point, though, part of the problem is that the people who are being most impacted by this crisis are quite often people in more vulnerable positions who aren't at the table having those conversations. The people at the table having the conversations are some of those, I now want to call them old world power structures, right? I'm a capitalist. I um, engage in the capitalist economy and I think that the underlying elements of that system could work so much better to serve our society better and we've got to engage in that conversation. I think we just need all of our governments to engage in those conversations and not just default back to last century solutions. There's a great quote, I think it was Madeleine Albright used it at one point, where she was essentially saying, we're now facing 21st century problems, but many of our leaders are bringing a 20th century mindset and they're making those decisions within the context of institutions that were established in the 18th and 19th century. We really need to take a 21st century focus. Would you say you're an optimist or a pessimist in relation to how our societies are likely to change in the future? Fundamentally an optimist. Like, I think you have to be, you know, hope for the best, plan for the worst is probably something that we should always do. But, but like, to your point about predetermination, that's on us. If we end up in a predetermined world, that is because we haven't joined together to have these conversations and, and have our will be made clear. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I don't know if you've watched Years and Years. It's pretty confronting because they just sort of push the current situation just a, a little bit further out, but you can actually really feel that this could happen. And they paint a picture of what our world will be like, and it's it's not very pretty. But right at the end, I don't want to spoil it for anybody who's not seen it yet, but right at the end, they kind of give you hope and they kind of give you the the message that if you don't do something now, then it's just going to happen. It's it's just like we're, we're frogs in hot water and we're just going to wake up one day and all of our ability to make change or control our lives will have disappeared. And, and I think that's, that is very true. But I, I take great faith from, you know, up until six weeks ago or whatever it was, we were being told that the living wage for unemployed people was impossible, could never happen overnight. Yeah. We made the decision that what's now called job seeker should actually be at a living wage level. Some of the great childcare, you know, that could never be free overnight. It was a decision was made that we could do it. We can make fundamental change if we prioritise people and making a better society. The conversation that we need to have now 
isn't about, oh, let me pull out from the bottom drawer my corporate tax reform proposal. What we need to pull out, not from the bottom drawer, but, you know, from a collective conversation is, okay, we've had this short, sharp jolt. Oh, not so short, not perhaps. So short. Yeah. <laughs> um, very but, sharp. But very sharp. And we know that the world in front of us is actually going to be fundamentally changed. So let's actually come together and ask ourselves some questions about what sort of society we want to try and rebuild from this. I don't think that it's that hard a conversation. And instead of instead of saying that, oh, my gosh, the government debt that they've taken on is, a, is going to be a burden for future generations, perhaps we could see it as an investment in creating the world that we could actually be because we know that we can build a better world. Yeah, that's a really nice way to think about it. If you were one of our listeners, probably sitting here listening to this conversation, but wondering what they can do personally to make a difference and make a change, what would your advice be to them? We live in a democracy right to your Member of Parliament. Make your voice heard. There are heaps of these online forums and so on. Inform yourself think about some of these issues, go to a trusted source of information, form your own opinions, ask questions and engage in the democratic process that we are so privileged to have. If we don't hang on to that process and that democratic environment that we have, we will lose that as well and that can slip away like you know, frogs in boiling water. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners in countries other than Australia that don't have democratic processes, so I'm sure that they, they know that very well. Well, th- those of us who are privileged to be in a democratic environment actually do have an obligation to do something about hanging on to it. Yeah, because we're seeing in other countries just how fragile that democracy can be with, you know, the wrong person at the top. Well, this is a really big, deep and meaningful conversation, <laughs> isn't it? Yes, it's like save the world in sort of yeah. <laughs> 40 minutes. <laughs> On that note, kind of coming out of this, you know, what's your priority going to be? What's next for Deanne? Well, these issues I am actually pretty passionate about. I'm blessed to be working with, in a business sense, for example, one of the startup companies that I'm currently chairing is a fantastic organisation called SEER Data and Analytics and, and working with a great uh, two great co-founders there, Christy Mansfield and Adam Peaston. And what they are doing is using big data and technology in order to help local community organisations make better decisions, understand the level of vulnerability within their community by using really complex data so that they can make better decisions about how they help rebuild their communities. So working with them is a way of actually building that capability and knowledge set across local community organisations to help them build better communities. And you're, you're expanding, SEER's expanding out to America, aren't they? Yes, we, we only commercially launched in Australia in October, but we will be moving into the US later in, later this year. So there's some huge opportunities there, I think, to bring that technology out to the rest of the globe. And, you know, one of my other companies, AI Media, which um, is a speech-to-text company, we've expanded that company now across the globe. We're now in Singapore and 
Malaysia and the UK and America and Canada, and that's providing speech-to-text services, which originally we started in broadcast television. Now we provide those services to Zoom meetings. And with this great change to working online, ensuring that everyone can understand what's happening on one of those meetings by having captions that are fully accurate, that's a great opportunity. So in the business sense, I guess I'm trying to um, help that. But in the also the not-for-profit and policy sense, I'm working with a bunch of people to try and make sure that these sorts of conversations are happening. There's a, a great bunch of philanthropists who are working together to see what organisations they can support to make sure we're having conversations about income inequality, that we're having conversations around democracy. I'm a sort of the chair of the Grata Fund, which is a an organisation that ensures that we can use strategic litigation for human rights and democracy cases, uh, which is pretty important. And then on the other hand, I've got Global Sisters, which is such a wonderful organisation that helps women for whom full-time employment is just impossible. And, And there was a big bunch of those women even before this crisis hit, in particular older women and single parents. So we're helping them start their own businesses and a lot of them are now having to very rapidly move those businesses online because of the world that we now find ourselves in. There's lots going on. Dan, people might think, you know, you're a superwoman, you've had a perfect sort of dream career ride. So maybe you could help us shatter a little bit of that image at least of perfection. What's been the most challenging point in your career and how did you overcome it? Well, look, I think probably, you know, 2014, 2015 was a really challenging period simply because I think my my incredible enthusiasm for my new life in 2012 when we sort of set up the investment company and I started investing, I frankly bit off a wee bit more than I could chew, as is the thing with startups sometimes, you know, not all of them work. Unfortunately for me, I had two, three businesses that got into very challenged circumstances in that sort of period of time. It was incredibly intense and and very difficult. And, you know, each one was different and there were reasons why they didn't work quite work out as uh, everyone had intended. But when you're either the chair or you're a board person and an investor, there's some really difficult conversations and really difficult decisions that need to be made. And, um, you know, I learned a lot out of that. And I absolutely believe that you learn more from what doesn't go right than what does go right. And it's important to take those lessons on board. That was a pretty tough period. Wow. And what was your biggest lesson, do you think, out of that time? I think the biggest lesson that I'm very focused on is ensuring that what I am working on is something that I am passionate about and that I can make a contribution to. So, you know, if it all comes back on you when when uh, things go wrong, you've got to make sure that um, if you're up until 2 and 3 a.m. every night working on things, it's got to be because you are a believer and you're passionate in what you're doing. That's a great lesson to have. And that's a really nice segue to a question we like to ask our guests, which is casting your mind back to when you were 30. And I know it's really recently, but what advice would you give your 30-year-old self? 
I could probably have taken things a little bit less seriously when I was 30 and maybe just had a little bit more fun because I was, a, I was, you know, pretty focused. Maybe, you know, just smell the roses a little bit more as you go. Deanne, it's been a fascinating conversation to learn more about you and your career. If listeners wanted to find out more about you briefly, and we'll also can put links up to companies that you'd like us to on the show notes page for this episode, but you know, where should they go to find out more? Well, I do actually have a website, which is just weareanderson.com. I have a blog section up there that I'm trying to use this period to do a bit more blogging. And yes, so weareanderson.com and then that kind of tells you about all of the different businesses. But the, the weareanderson.com gives you a good summary of everything. Fantastic. And that's weir, W-E-I-R, Anderson with an O-N at the end of Anderson. But we'll put that on our show notes page too. And that just leaves me to say thank you again uh, for a fascinating conversation and we really appreciate it and wishing you all the best for when we get out of this crazy coronavirus time and here's to all of us working and doing our bit to build a better world. Great to talk to you. Thanks. Fantastic. Thanks, Deanne. What a deep conversation that was. Yeah, it sure was. I love it when we just go with the energy and really find out what our guest is truly passionate about. Yeah, me too. And you can just tell how passionate Deanne is to create societal change, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad we've got people like her pushing issues forward. Yeah, it's so important. And, you know, she reminded me, though, that we all have our parts to play in using and raises our voices to create change, too. We can't be bystanders. No, totally agree. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Look out for our mini episode on mastery next week. And don't forget, if you want to stay up to date with all the great wisdom and advice our guests share with us in different ways, then be sure to sign up for our weekly email. Head over now to don'tstopusnow.co and sign up. Ciao for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.